Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Cathy. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast. It's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. But sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. Here we are for Nature Tripping episode 24. We're on the Broughton Hall estate near Skipton. It's the middle of August. It's fairly cloudy, not too windy. And we're here today to think about rewilding. And we're very pleased to have with us Alistair Driver from Rewilding Britain. Alistair, would you like to introduce yourself and say a little bit about Rewilding Britain? Thank you, yeah, great to, great to have you out here and show you around. Always a privilege taking people around this site because it's pretty exciting to see what's happening. So um, my day job is Director of Rewilding Britain, which is a small charity. It's aiming to catalyse rewilding across England, Scotland and Wales. We have now actually up to 28 staff, I think we've got now. When I started six and a half years ago, there were three of us, so things are going quite quickly. We're aiming to help people understand more about rewilding, what it is, what it isn't. We want to mainstream it as an option, one of many options for land use, land management, and indeed marine environment as well. We want to act as a catalyst, though. You know, that, that is the important thing. Not owning land and doing it ourselves, but helping, encouraging, advising others who want to engage with us on how to do it. But also influencing government, government policy, government funding in the three countries. Uh, to help them move in a direction which enables more of it to happen. So we might all be familiar with the term nature conservation and there are nature conservation bodies at work, but this is something slightly different, rewilding. Mm. Could you explain actually what rewilding is? Yeah, yeah. So first thing to say is that I'm a traditional nature conservationist. I spent 34 years of my career in the Environment Agency and its predecessor bodies promoting the creation and restoration of rivers and wetlands and managing nature reserves and making SSSI sites of special scientific interest better. That's nature conservation and it's very important and valid. But rewilding is different because you are seeking to allow nature to lead more over time, whereas in a nature reserve a protected site, you're probably maintaining that site in a certain condition you know, a hay meadow or an ancient woodland, etc. Rewilding, you might be doing the same sort of things to kickstart the natural process recovery and the biodiversity recovery, but after a while you need to wean yourself off that management and let nature lead. So I'm just going to give you a quick definition, a summary definition, tweetable if you like. Rewilding is the large-scale restoration of ecosystems to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. And that bit about nature taking care of itself is one of the fundamental differences compared with traditional nature conservation where you, the human beings, are probably managing the system, ensuring that nature is okay. With nature conservation, maybe you've decided what the end point is, you've decided what species you want there, and you're managing the habitat to ensure that you get that. Yeah, absolutely. This is absolutely. the opposite. You're, yeah. you're letting natural processes do whatever they want to do, yeah. and nature do whatever it wants to do. Yeah, absolutely. And the important element of that definition I gave you that I should also emphasise is large scale. Because you're, if you're operating at a really large scale, 
like we are here on a 3,000 acre estate, then you've got the opportunity to be more relaxed about what appears where. You know, you're not dealing with a 10 acre nature reserve where you, you want to maintain that as an orchid rich grassland. You're dealing with thousands of acres and you can accept it if yes you lose a few wildflowers in one area or a breeding wader in another area knowing that you're going to get hundreds if not thousands of other things prospering and hopefully those same things popping up in other places. Yeah, yeah. Some people might think it's going back to the past. Yeah, that's often um, something that's thrown at us. It is not about trying to recreate a system to a particular point in time. It's about trying to restore the landscape so that it's fit for the future. You know, we are in a different situation now with many more millions of people in this country and indeed many countries around the world, of course. Uh, we're in a situation where climate is changing quite fast. We need to create a more resilient landscape. What we must do is look back to the past to see what we once had and what we might have again, but we are not through rewilding we are not trying to recreate a particular point in time we are acknowledging what we once had and what we might restore but we have to take account of future scenarios mm. and we know biodiversity is in a pretty poor state in the uk so presumably rewilding is one of the key th approaches we can take to try and reverse the biodiversity loss that this country's experienced? Definitely. I, I mean, as I say, I'm a traditional conservationist. I've been doing this nature reserve -y stuff for 30-odd years, but I've been in rewilding Britain now for nearly seven years, and I am seeing really dramatic transformation, particularly in terms of bioabundance. So when you start rewilding land, you are basically stopping all the bad things from happening. You know, stopping pouring nitrates and phosphates on it, stopping chemicals and medications. You are stopping that kind of human intervention that is suppressing or damaging the natural environment and suppressing natural processes. So the moment you stop doing that, instantly you start to get a response. The big response you get in the early years is abundance. So you see this incredible explosion of invertebrates, small mammals, things that feed on those invertebrates and small mammals quickly respond to that. So there's no doubt that it can be very dramatic in terms of its reversing decline in bioabundance. Diversity, rarity, that's more challenging. You know, yes, you will see some things returning, as we do indeed on this land here. We've seen bits of limestone grassland flora appearing immediately. We, we remove sheep grazing from some areas, but not everywhere, only in little pockets because of the long-term intensive agriculture that's gone on in this landscape. And that's where one needs to start thinking about early interventions to kickstart recovery. Okay, so I think what we're going to do throughout the course of the next 40 minutes or so is go to some different points in this 3,000 acre estate to see what interventions have been started as part of the rewilding process. Um, let's say a little bit about where we are right now, actually. We're on the top of a small hill and we can see 360 degrees around us, can't we? Yep. We can already see there's a kind of wide range of habitat um, and clearly some bits that look like traditional sheep pasture, but other bits where we've got trees that have been planted, we've got a lot of thistles, we've got some woodland. What you're seeing here is that mix of fairly intensive grazing, 
mainly sheep grazing, but it has had dairy on it and quite a lot of slurry spreading. So it's heavily enriched land and you can spot that easily because it's bright green. Mm. You know, it stands out a mile, doesn't mm. it? You look around and you see these occasional fields. Those fields are where the land is in multi-generational tenancy agreements that are fixed, if you like. Now, one might be able to negotiate with the tenant farmer about tweaking their arrangements, but it's very much up to the tenant as to how they farm and what they farm. Mm. The areas which look rougher and browner or fawn in colour, multi-textured, multi-coloured, those are the rewilding areas. Those are the areas that were in annual grazing licences where we ended those grazing licences. They were sheep, so all of it looked like this billiard table green Mm -hmm. that you see in pockets. All of it looked like that only two or three years ago it all looked like that but now you're seeing these quite large areas of rewilding land so if you like the first intervention is stop intensive grazing second intervention is then in this case planting trees and so with stopping the grazing presumably you also stop the application of fertilizers to provide the rich grass you stop the application of pesticides to kill the weeds that you don't want yep so you start immediately making the system more natural yeah so and yeah, some so. of these fields um for grass for silage yes they well. were yeah, yeah they were indeed absolutely um, um, because there's dairy down in the valley bottom yeah um so yeah quite a lot of silage taken a lot of slurry spreading you can see a field yeah. there that was slurry spread yesterday so that's in these long-term aha we call yeah. them agreements and it's bright green monoculture isn't it yeah that's right yeah mm. now you could and some rewilding projects do stop grazing and just leave it and what um, so what would happen is you would get what you see now rough grassland and say you know quite a lot of thistle a little bit in the way of wildflowers there's a little bit of a yellow rattle down in that field there but not much in the way of floristically rich upland hay meadow flora that you would expect to see and that's because it's had decades of intensive farming so just walking away from that wouldn't actually achieve much in the way of biodiversity. Mm-hmm. You would still get that abundance of invertebrates, you know, mm. grasshoppers and hoverflies and things. So what would it look like maybe in 10 years if it was just left? It would still look like that rough grassland. Yeah, and sort of rank grassland. Yeah. Tree seeds couldn't penetrate, you no, couldn't that, get trees. No, that, that's seasons. an important point. Yeah. So you, in some cases, in rewilding sites, in fact, the, the default option should be to allow natural regeneration of trees, you know, let trees seed themselves. And that works where you've got arable fields that you're suddenly stopping cultivation on because you've got bare soil. So the NEP model, you know, in southeast of England, that's predominantly arable. Lots of jays and squirrels, good tree seed sources around the field compartments, lots of natural regeneration. That's the ideal scenario, nature doing its thing. Here, very few trees in the landscape, 4% tree cover in this borough, and very few species so not only few numbers but actually limited number of species as well of Of trees of tree so here the priority was to get trees back in this landscape quickly and fortunately we're in a a white rose forest project area using nature for climate funding that paid for the tree planting so how many trees did they plant in the first year first year (laughs) unbelievably within eight months of the first meeting i had with the landowner to talk about the idea of rewilding we planted 220,000 native trees and shrubs and uh, and that was in all of these grazing license pockets that you see uh, scattered around the estate 
okay the pockets that you the, we the able estate to, owner had been able to take back yeah yeah once that year annual grazing license came to an end he was able to then plant trees now you might think oh what about those poor farmers that didn't have that grazing anymore well they all have grazing elsewhere they're all fairly well off and and they have access to other land and so losing the odd field here and there uh, wasn't actually a massive deal mm. we've gone for a sort of slightly zoned approach so you're looking at what you call high forest in the middle with likes of beech and sessile and pedunculate oak and lime etc and then around that species uh, like for example holly field maple uh, aspen and around the edges thorny species you know blackthorn hawthorn and also willow around the edges so there's a pattern to it mm-hmm. and we feathered those zones in and out of each other mm-hmm. and we've also kept clearings and rides and glades free of tree planting within the planting areas now what you will see is quite dense planting unfortunately that was because the grant requirements required 1600 trees per hectare uh, when we did the original planting three years ago fortunately the rules have changed uh, now down to 1100 which is more realistic still probably too many for a natural situation but because we've had 90% survival we've got too many trees ironically so we are actually going to let cattle into these areas rare breed cattle roaming in these areas sooner than we would have done otherwise and they might take a few out. Tree planting is an example of how rewilding relates to addressing climate change isn't it because if you plant more trees there's more carbon sequestration isn't it? Yeah absolutely yeah so we've got a biodiversity crisis we've got a climate emergency and these are these are reasons to get on and do things and do it fast and do it big and obviously rewilding ticks those boxes certainly at this kind of scale it does we were funded by the nature for climate fund which is helping to sequester more carbon but in the early years it's not so much the young trees that are sequestering lots of carbon it's the grassland itself you know because you can see there's far greater biomass of grassland now compared with those billiard table green fields next to it so yeah carbon sequestration the other thing is look where we are on on quite steep slopes here in the head streams of the river air catchment and this is also connected with an environment agency natural flood management program to help reduce flooding further down in Leeds further down the catchment so by creating this roughness on the slopes we are reducing the rate at which water runs off into the watercourses. And how about the changes walking through the landscape we can see the changes in the vegetation but have you noticed changes in the wildlife? The the main things I've noticed wildlife wise are First of all, the response in terms of small mammals. Like within the first year, you could walk through the rough grass and there were voles pinging everywhere. <laughs> now, I know voles have boom and bust years, yeah. but this was just ridiculous. <laughs> you, you could hardly walk without stepping on one. You know, it was just bonkers. <laughs> and of course, then you immediately saw the barn owls, the kestrels, the buzzards responding to that. There's a photographer here, bird photographer. He came, he saw eight barn owls hawking in the same field at the same time. That is unheard of. Yeah. Even Colin Shoyer, the Hawk and Altrust guy that I've worked with for 30 odd years, who's put barn owl boxes up here, he's never seen more than three. So to see eight in one field compartment is just ridiculous. But that's a sign of yeah. how much food there was that they weren't bothered about competition yeah. between each other. I'm a moth trapper. Yeah. I went from catching 30 to 50 moths of maybe 10 or 15 species in one night, pre-rewilding, to 500 to 1,000 moths of about 30 species. Wow. 500 to 1,000 moths in a single trap 
I mean, it just became almost impossible, you know. <laughs> you know you use these egg boxes, like an egg box for a dozen eggs. There'd be 50 moths on one side, turn it over, there'd be another 50 on the other side, you know. I mean, they were just wall to wall. That is just astonishing. I've never, in all my years, I've never yeah. seen anything like that. Yeah. This immediate bioabundance, particularly lower down the food chain, yeah. that's what we've lost. Yeah. You know, it's the shifting baseline syndrome. We've forgotten that that's what you could normal. have and that's that what we normal. had. And yeah. perhaps when I was a kid, we did have, you know, but we lost that. That base of that food pyramid has gone. Mm. And that's why everything above it is so sparse. This bioabundance is rebuilding the ecosystem. Uh, and it's really dramatic. Yeah, just That's standing wonderful. just standing here today, we've seen several kestrels. Mm. We can hear a buzzard, mm. and there's been a little flock of goldfinches yeah, yeah. pass over. Yeah. And they'll really love the thistles. Yeah, I tell you one bird that I see here every time I come here, or here actually, I hear them more than see them is bullfinches. Mm. There are always bullfinches here. So on on yeah. agricultural land like this, that's pretty. Well, unusual, you, you isn't well, it? it's in they're in the you know in the hedgerows yeah. um, where we have got hedgerows and yeah. trees, and in the of course the registered parkland. But there's far more seed and food mm. now for them. So this estate, as we said, is three thousand acres big, and it's been in one family for generations. Yes, and the present person who's looking after it he's really into nature and mm-hmm. um, it's provided this fantastic opportunity for where possible to take land back from farming and and rewild it roger tempest you know he describes himself as a custodian not an owner he wants to leave the land in a better place for future generations he's got a young daughter so he really cares and believes that he should be doing things differently you may have been in a family of farmers <coughs> for generations or a grouse shooting estate or you might be into timber production. Um, it's quite a mental shift to get from being a farmer or a grouse shoot estate owner or a forester to become a rewilder. Mm. You talked about rewilding happening on a large scale. so. It is, in some ways, about influencing people who have responsibilities for large areas of land to do a shift in their mindset. And that strikes me as quite a challenge. Yeah, yeah, it it, it is challenging. So far, in my time with Rewilding Britain, we've focused primarily on the willing, you know, or the people who want to have a conversation. People like Roger, who approached us three years ago and said, you know, I'd like to find out more about rewilding. Do you think it works for me? What does it mean? Etc. And that's part of my job. I travel and visit these people by invitation. They're not all private estates, by the way. Don't, mm. don't get the impression it's all big, rich landowners. It's not. Environmental NGOs, water companies, Ministry of Defence, Crown Estate, Forestry Commission, National Trust. They're all people that we're talking to. But size does matter. So it's the bigger landowners we need to focus on. Uh, I wouldn't go around trying to force rewilding down the throats of small farmers you're not going to be able to move very far up the rewilding spectrum if you've just got a hundred acres or so you know you might be able to do some things but probably nature-friendly farming is a better approach in those sort of scenarios unless you can start to team up with your neighbors Mm. and run a project as a group and there are one or two examples that Mm. are doing that around the country but they're quite hard to find Mm. so it's better to focus on the big landowning organizations and individuals and fortunately at the moment, certainly in the private world, there are a lot of people wanting to talk about this. They're up for it. Yeah, yeah. Because they, they see the writing on the wall when it comes to, you know, biodiversity decline, climate change, but also funding, government funding. 
a phasing out of basic payment scheme, which was just paying people to farm regardless of how they did it. That was part of the old common agricultural but, yeah, policy. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, for me, I always describe it as one of the silver linings of Brexit, that we actually had an opportunity yeah. to create our own system. And interestingly, you know, Europe is now watching <laughs> with some interest at this new public money for public goods system, which is yeah. going to reward a much more sustainable form of farming. We have heard like mixed messages about public money for public goods and whether the processes that have been set up are ones that <coughs> landowners can work with. Are we in a favourable position if you're a landowner wanting to rewild? Is the, is the subsidy or the support there within the new process? Well, as ever with these government schemes, we have a tendency to overcomplicate them, which is always a problem. So the principle of public for money for public goods is absolutely perfect rock solid okay it's yeah. a rock solid principle yeah. and the rest of the world should be looking at this as the way forward for balancing agricultural land use and indeed other land uses with nature recovery for me it's it's the perfect way forward looking at all of the public goods that land can deliver and rewarding landowners appropriately for delivering that mm. for society as a whole mm. okay we are at great risk of overcomplicating it because of the nature of our governance in this country. Uh, like many other Western world countries, to be honest, we can over-egg over the rules. That is a real serious concern in terms of putting people off. Mm. So I already know of several landowners who are pressing on with some nature recovery and not bothering with the government schemes because it's too messy, too complicated, too painful. And that's a shame. It shouldn't be like that. However... I'm also aware of plenty that are accessing landscape recovery pilot scheme funding, which is part of the environmental land management scheme, the mm -hmm. landscape recovery components, the top tier, if you like, large scale nature restoration. You know, they're oversubscribed. I think they are already oversubscribed mm -hmm. for these kinds of landowners coming forward. And that will help to convince government they should do more of this. Yeah. And once other people see what's been achieved at these sites that have received the funding and that yeah. it's working out for those landowners, yeah maybe there'll be a kind of snowball effect yeah, yeah. and other people will come on board after the, the early adopters, there'll be a next wave. Yeah, yeah. And, one, and one of the ways that it's not just the fact that you can walk through these sites and see wildlife everywhere, as we're seeing kestrels and buzzards everywhere here and, mm. and uh, in invertebrates, you know, pinging around in the grassland. It's not just that, it's, it's the financial aspect and the socioeconomics. Uh, and what we're seeing is that Taking this approach leads to a diversification of income sources. So more and more of these landowners are embracing light-touch nature tourism, educational opportunities, mm. health and well-being opportunities. Mm. They're accessing grants and foundational money that weren't previously available to when it was just pure farming. Yeah, so they're becoming more resilient as businesses. Absolutely. If yeah. one thing isn't going so well, yeah. say your beef sales that year, you know from your few rare breed cattle aren't so good that year chances are something else is doing okay and yeah. you get that buffering by having your eggs in more than one basket mm. and that that's a standard pattern that i'm seeing with these sites mm. so there's a sense in which rewilding could be more economically viable and lead to more jobs if you bear in mind that the basic payment scheme is being phased out then yes, the answer is yes, absolutely, more resilient. And what we're seeing is this increase in jobs. For rewilding Britain, I record the numbers of full-time equivalent jobs on rewilding sites. Mm. And the increase so far, compared with traditional farming and grouse moors beforehand, the, the increase is 78%. Mm. 
78% increase in full-time equivalent jobs. Mm. 1,200% increase in volunteer engagement. Mm. It's bringing more people into the land, not less. If you believe what you see in some social media and indeed the press, you might think it's about land abandonment. It's not. Mm. It's halfway up a rewilding spectrum in this country, not right at the top. This is not Yellowstone or Okavango or, you know, parts of Transylvania. This is halfway up a rewilding spectrum and actually people are very much part of this landscape. Yeah, and that's a, that's an interesting point you raised because another thing that you often see in, in the press is fears about, oh, well, there's going to be bears and wolves and lynx and we don't want the top predators back in our landscape because it'll be too dangerous or they'll kill our cattle or our sheep. So that's a challenge that you yeah i mean face. we look you know look i'm wearing the t-shirt and on my t-shirt there's a wolf print you know rewilding <laughs> britain wolf, and that is you know deliberate we're not getting rid of that that is something that could happen in this mm-hmm. country in future the rest of europe has wolves now because mainly because they're walking back in from other countries you know yes. of their own accord they are recolonizing <laughs> the land that they once lived in uh, unfortunately us with being an island we've got to make a decision and this generation Sadly, you know, my generation certainly won't be making that decision. But maybe future generations will. What we have to do in the meantime is gradually bring society on board more and more so that they're more comfortable and understand the benefits of having apex predators back Mm. in the landscape. But also what we have to do is help people to understand that you can't just lump lynx and wolves and bears all together in the same sentence. They're all completely different scenarios. You know, it's arguable as to whether there is enough suitable bear habitat in this country. Yes, wolves could survive ecologically, but, you know, society's not ready for it. Lynx, on the other hand, lynx you could have back, you know, mm. literally, if it wasn't for societal concerns, lynx could be back tomorrow and nobody would notice, apart from the killing of small numbers of livestock in and around lynx-inhabited woodlands. But they mainly eat deer, don't they? Here, yeah. Here, so, they would mainly eat oh, deer. Oh, absolutely, and roe deer, roe deer and, and foxes. Two- Roe deer, roe deer and foxes would be the top of their list mm, for prey so items. And we've got far too many of both of those things compared with what we would have had mm. naturally yeah. because we've removed all the apex yes. predators from the landscape. <laughs> and so all of these generalists, mm. predators and herbivores, have prospered. Yeah. And what about reintroductions generally? What's the sort of view well, of... Well, re- reintroduction is one of many interventions. So, you know, we talked about tree planting being an intervention. I've got a list of nearly 30 types of intervention that rewilding sites are doing. People restoration, river restoration, wetland creation, wildflower seeding, etc. Species reintroductions is one of those. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've also got a list of approximately 60 species that people are considering reintroducing or have already reintroduced in rewilding sites. Not on that list are lynx, wolf, bear or elk. (laughs) Not on that list. So there are lots of other things that we can be getting on with that are completely innocuous. Butterflies, plants, fungi, Mm. even mycorrhizal fungi to help get the soil back into Mm. good condition. Yes, on that list are things like pine martin and beaver, for example, and white-tailed eagle. But those are all eminently doable and we should have them back. Obviously, we know about... Uh, the incredible ecosystem engineering that beavers can provide. They are the favourite, if you like. You know, they're the most popular one for people to reintroduce. And in fact, there are plans on this estate to think about Mm -hmm. 
bringing in the beavers, aren't they? Yeah, we're just starting to raise the funding now for an enclosure. Sadly, we have to be talking about enclosures because, unfortunately, the government is still not prepared to sanction releases into the wild. That's a great shame. We've been through years and years of consultation. Do you know when I was first consulted on beaver reintroduction? 1987. <laughs> That's how long I've been waiting. I'm prepared to wait a few more years until we get the right government in place to make that decision. Natural England are ready, willing and able to, to consider licence applications. There are lots of consortia out there in various parts of the country, ready, willing and able to deliver them. We could just do with getting on with it because we have got a biodiversity crisis and the climate emergency. Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> I think uh, we should go later on in the podcast to have a look at the site that mm-hmm. is being considered for beavers. Yeah, okay. wander through that. Yeah, I'll show you that. We've come down the hill to a stream where the stream crosses a farm track in a ford to um, think about natural flood management. This is one of the other ways in which rewilding can contribute to addressing climate change. Yeah, well, I brought you here because this stream is where we've introduced some leaky dams, uh, basically woody debris, as they call it, interwoven, a bit like beavers would do, much better than us, but fortunately we can't have beavers yet. So, so we've installed these leaky dams. It's all part of an Environment Agency natural flood management programme for the river air catchment to reduce flooding downstream in Leeds and other towns. And because we are rewilding at scale here and roughening up the hillside with lots of trees and lots of rough grassland, uh, we are immediately having an impact on reducing flood flows off the hills. But there are other things we can also do, and leaky dams is one of those other elements. So we did that uh, two winters ago, and as expected, some of those leaky dams have moved. But they've moved to another place in the same stream where they are still a leaky dam. So that's the great thing about working at scale. You can do things, and if nature does a bit of adjusting for you, it doesn't really matter. Mm. So yes, they're still here, not necessarily all in the same locations we put them. The other things we're doing related to natural flood management are in some of the tree planting areas before they were planted, the Environment Agency paid for aeration, soil aeration. Because you've had decades of compaction through pitter-patter of tiny sheepy feet, the soil has become quite panned and we've actually got video and photos of sheets of water passing over those billiard table sheep fields. It prior to the rewilding. It doesn't soak in quickly enough. Some of it will eventually penetrate, permeate down into the bedrock, but a lot of it was just washing straight off into the watercourses. So immediately that aeration and the tree plant in rough grass and you know starts to draw more water into the ground, infiltration, and indeed the vegetation itself above ground acts as a sponge. You know, it's trapping quite a lot of water above ground. We're also this winter, as another phase of natural flood management, we are going to be creating ponds basically to hold water back on the hill so we're creating ponds further up this slope and they're going to be great for amphibians and dragonflies etc it's it's actually often the case in rewilding sites that i find a lot of them are actually very short of natural ponds and Mm. standing water so that's another intervention Uh, ponds are a natural feature you know they evolve through animal activity and uh, geological and surface geology variations Uh, You can even get little ponds in fallen trees, you know, in tree stumps and things. You know, we've lost a lot of that from the landscape through the tidying up of centuries. Yeah, and I suppose if you're trying to grow grass to feed the sheep, you drain the land of any excess water. Yeah, you're trying to maximise the amount of short grazing land available. Mm. And actually, that reminds me of another intervention, deculverting. 
So we're going to another part of the site soon where actually they, they culverted the stream underground to provide a little bit more grazing land. <laughs> yeah. um, and we've de-culverted it and allowed for the stream to be back, you know, daylighted once again. Obviously we're improving the water quality by reducing all the inputs that go onto the land. What I would expect to see in these watercourses is a greater abundance of mayflies, stoneflies, more sensitive species yeah. as the water quality improves. Now that's going to take a while because don't forget there's still uh, nitrates and phosphates coming into this stream from the land, from historic you know, improvement. And indeed there are some parts of the upper catchment here which are still part of intensive agriculture. So it's not, it's not going to happen overnight. But gradually, we will see that improvement, and we are actually working with the River Air Trust and others, Wild Trout Trust, etc., to look at monitoring some of these watercourses now. Okay, so we've come down the hill um, into a stone walled enclosure of woodland I suppose you'd call it. There are some small patches of woodland on the estate and we're in one of them and this is the site which may become the home for some beavers. We hope so. It's one of the few woodlands that's got a stream running through it and it's also got some old duck shooting ponds in it as well. There's a reasonable amount of water. It doesn't look like a lot at the moment but believe me once the beavers get stuck in here you're going to see a fantastic mosaic of pools and channels and wetland areas that they will create. So yeah, that's the plan. So they will basically pick a tree or two? Yeah, I mean what they'll do is they will probably pick the centre of this woodland area where there's the most water. This, the stream runs through the middle in most part and they'll raise the water level by felling some trees and branches. Obviously they fell trees to eat some of the leaves if, you, if you've got poplar and aspen etc. And they, they do and that willow. literally by chewing through a trunk, don't they? That's right, they gnaw with their incredible incisors through the trunk. And uh, believe me, some trees, you know, this sort of size, uh, which are two or three feet across, they could be part of the target, <laughs> depending on the type of tree and the location. OK. But a lot of the trees in this woodland will be untouched mm -hmm. because they're far enough away from the channel or they're the wrong type of tree mm -hmm. for the beaver. So they will start felling trees in the centre and then you'll start to see wetland vegetation appearing. Um, the thing is with these ponds and the stream at the moment, there's very little in the way of aquatic and wetland vegetation because mm. it's very shady in here. Mm. Yeah, the ground beneath this is dry, dry so yeah, this will start getting yeah. boggy because they'll dam That's right, the yeah, there'll be boggier areas. Once they've created that main dam section which they can swim freely up and down safely and they've created these mini on-stream lakes on the stream, they will then look at creating channels, digging canals to other low-lying spots where they can then start to create other pools and deepen other pools. And why are they creating these It's pools? just creating new habitat for, for growth. Expanding the extent of wetland. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And what they'll do is they'll find areas where there are some willow. We might even bring some willow in here. And they will then start to spread that willow. I've seen that in some beaver sites, where they literally take willow branches... In their mouth. In their mouth, drag them down their canals into the new ponds that they've created and dammed, and leave them there. Yeah, to root. To root. Wow. Yeah. I've seen that. 
up on Lowther Estate they in Cumbria. They particularly like the willow. Yeah, willow, aspen, poplar are particular favourites. So they're going to manipulate this woodland and they're going to make it far more diverse than it currently is. We will see a lot more in the way of wetland and aquatic vegetation in here. And it's not that they're killing the trees. I mean, some will die. Some mm. will die because they'll be drowned out. But quite a lot of the trees respond by regenerating growth. It's a bit like coppicing, you know, mm. certain species respond well to coppicing. Mm. That's effectively what beavers do with certain tree species. That's why they're kind of known as landscape engineers, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, ecosystem engineers. Ecosystem that's engineers. it, yeah, yeah. So we'll be applying for a licence for an enclosure here. So we've done the feasibility. We know it's the best place. It's a good place. We now need to raise the money, which we're working on at the moment. Probably cost about 50000 for a perimeter fence. And then we apply for a licence and hopefully, I don't know, in a couple of years we might have them here. You bring in a male and a female. Yeah. And then you hope that they'll breed and have kids. Yeah, I think this site is big enough to tolerate two family groups, two generations if you like. After that, if they bred again, you'd need to be thinking about translocating them to other places. Yeah. I hope by that time that we will be able to release to the wild under licence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so they're serving to not only increase the biodiversity in this woodland and change the habitat into something that's more biodiverse and more rich, but also by building these dams and retaining the water in these wet areas, you're slowing the flow mm -hmm. in times of heavy rainfall. So you're not going to get these massive peaks in flow rushing downstream, which is going to help with flood risk mm. mitigation. Generally speaking, beavers and similar natural flood management techniques can reduce the peak flow by about 20 to 30%. If you start adding up all of these interventions, mm. you know, that's quite something. Um, so they will buffer peak flows. They will also increase the amount of time it takes for that peak flow to pass downstream. Say beavers were in the wild, yeah. this part of the country, that would have a cumulative effect in terms of reducing the peak flow mm transmission time downstream yeah. give people more time in terms of you know evacuating mm. if it was really bad but the other really important thing is that you know they are trapping sediment and yeah. improving water quality in doing so yeah. because this woodland is surrounded well certainly to the upstream end by more intensive agriculture beyond the estate so mm. quite a lot of polluted water is coming mm. into this stream mm. so this will help to improve water quality reduce flood risk store more carbon and very importantly as an enclosure, it will help to get more people on board with understanding what beavers can do. This will be the sort of place where we would run evening beaver watching from yeah. a hide, possibly. Yeah. A lot of enclosures do that around the country yeah. now, where you get a chance to see them at dusk. You know, they've been extinct in this country for you know nearly 400 years until recently. Helping people to understand what they can do and what amazing creatures they are is, is another step forward. So let's come back here in a few years, Cathy, <laughs> for the beaver podcast. To do the beavers. We've got one other site to visit yeah. on the estate, which is the arable field, I think, that has been yeah. regenerated. Yeah, former arable field. It's the only one in the entire rewilding area, yeah. and that's where natural regeneration has been allowed. Okay, so let's go there next. Well, we've moved across the main road to a very different sort of habitat. We're in the middle of what was once an arable field, but now it's kind of um, waist-high vegetation 
and it's um, full of thistles and rosebay willow herbs and dock leaves and ash saplings. So why is there that yeah, difference? very different recent history here. So um, this may have been sheep pasture once, but in the recent years prior to the rewilding, it was an arable field used for either fodder crops like maize or wheat, for example. So literally three years ago now, the last crop had been taken off and we just let it be. And I was really keen that we didn't plant this area because natural regeneration should be the default option for getting trees back in the landscape. And this was our one opportunity on this estate to do that because we had basically bare arable field. So that's the key, the bare yeah, soil. Yeah, the bare soil which tree seeds could gain purchase with. Okay. Compared with the compacted turf of the sheep graze land. And apart from some suckering blackthorn which suckers via the root system, I haven't seen any natural regeneration in any of the rest of the tree planting areas where where the grassland is now long and matted. It's just too established for anything else yeah. to get in there. Yeah, absolutely. It would take yeah. decades and decades. And we haven't got decades. We've got climate emergency, yeah. etc. So, so here we had the opportunity to, to allow natural regeneration. Now, if you look around the field boundaries, you'll see a few scattered trees. It's not, it's not hedgerow. It's individual field boundary trees. And actually, very few species. Hawthorn. Uh, sycamore and ash are the main species but already we've had seven species of tree and shrub appear in this field now mm. it includes quite a lot of willow that's blown in from further afield it's going well so far and if you look around you start to get your eye in you can see the ash starting to poke now above the herbaceous vegetation above the willow herb some of it's already four or five foot high obviously we've got ash dieback so how much of that survives will remain to be seen but even if these trees die, which they might do when they're seven, eight feet high, by then, some of them will have had birds perching on them, excreting droppings with seeds of hawthorn and blackthorn and other things in them. And so that natural process of tree re-establishment will happen, even if quite a few of these ash end up dying. What about, what do you expect for the succession of the other plants? Because at the moment, there is no bare soil anymore. I've already noticed just in the first two or three years uh, quite a dramatic change. So, so for example, you see these grassy sward appearing. That wasn't here two years ago. You know, there was no grass really to be seen. Now you're starting to get a turf appearing in here, naturally. So grassy species developing, the buttercups are obviously responding as well and appearing where there's more grass. We will see more changes and you know, remember rewilding is not about, yeah. you know, being prescriptive and no. saying, well, I want to see this, this and this. It's about letting it go and let's see what nature does. And if you look around you, you will notice there are patches that are very different from other patches. You know, there are, why, why is that area over there yeah. hardly got any anything but grass in it? Why is that area there dominated by willow herb? You know, it's really intriguing to see a field that looked totally uniform actually become very varied. So you know? There are variations under the immediate surface aren't there in, yeah. in rock yeah. or drainage exactly. or yeah. permeability or absolutely little subtleties or yeah little subtleties that are not not obvious to the naked eye i mean for years this must have been drenched annually in herbicides or um, insecticides fungicides yeah all those chemicals they can't have leached out of the soil immediately so. no it'll take time it'll yeah. take time and we are on a slope so, you know, inevitably a lot of that stuff will continue to percolate down to the watercourses. You know, it's not going to change overnight, but what has changed overnight is the input. All that stopped yeah. day one, yeah. three years ago. So, yeah, a really interesting contrast 
to the tree planting areas and the wood pasture areas that you see across the way there where we've got clumps of planting or, or continuous planting in the woodland areas yeah. you know it's yet another variety and sooner or later we will have livestock in here right a few free-ranging cattle that will also be ranging in the tree planting areas they will be allowed in here to do their thing generally speaking you won't see such tall growth in once cattle come in but it'll be tussocky more varied in uh, Isabella Tree's book Wilding she talks about the very beneficial effect of the hooves of the animals mm. creating like bare patches of ground where you might get puddles you start to get other types yeah. of life and, and the dung that yeah. you know bearing in mind these animals are going to be minimal medication just the bare minimum yeah. to comply with yeah. regulations so the dung is going to be good healthy dung that is going to attract a lot of yeah. a lot of invertebrates that's going to help to make the soil suit more suitable for other plant species etc mm. and so gradually you start to see that mixture that mosaic effect appearing mm. this is the sort of landscape effect though that some people might think is messy and out of control. Mm. How do rewilding Britain kind of combat that? Well, we don't criticism? really try to combat that, <laughs> what, apart from saying, look, if you look at a landscape, look at those bright green fields over there, short monoculture fields. Yeah. Do not think, just because that looks pretty or aesthetically pleasing, that it's good and healthy. It's not. It is far less good and healthy than this huge mixture of fluffiness and raggedness. I call it scruffy, you know, scruffication, kind of scrufficating the landscape. And actually that's a good thing. That's a good thing for nature. It's a good thing for all these public goods that we've been talking about. And so what we've got to try and do is, is encourage people to understand what this scruffy, rougher, textured landscape does in terms of delivering things that are beneficial to nature and people. Yes, and it's a mindset, isn't it? Because many people will say, well, I love the dales. I love that green rolling landscape or the bleak beauty of the moors. So it's changing the mindset so that, such that this kind of environment is one where they go, oh my goodness, this mm. is going to be so rich ecologically. Yeah. Listen to all the insects. Look well, at all the wildlife here great this is what i like and I, can i just say I, I think we are seeing signs that people are starting to understand that through the no mow may approach yes you know so councils are being encouraged not to mow their verges and roundabouts yeah. and things and yes i still see people whinging about tidiness but actually i see far more people now saying you know why are you cutting in may why don't you apply no mow may mm. we want to see the wildflowers so i think we're creeping in the right direction yeah. on that public perception yeah yeah and it it's a bit of a chilly grey afternoon, isn't it? I think we were expecting a blazing hot sunshine for late <laughs> August, but um, presumably quite often this is teeming with insects. Ah, uh, the butterflies, grasses. I mean, the, the thistles are over now, uh -huh. but uh, I did a big butterfly count in one of these rewilding areas, you know, where you do 15 minutes, you record, and I clocked 74 individuals in 15 minutes. Yeah. Now, I, I've done big butterfly counts for years. I've never had anything like that. So in the peak of the summer, when all of these things are flowering, it is alive with pollinating insects mm. and, and butterflies. Yeah. And, and indeed, as I, I talked about, my moth trapping is just showing yeah. you know, results going through the roof. Yeah, yeah. So if people wanted to visit this site, there are a number of permissive paths being created around the areas that are being rewilded so people can experience a rewilded landscape for themselves. 
there are public roads and lanes through the estate as well which yeah. people can walk on and tracks but we're also creating a circular route around the site and we're just busy now compiling the information to go with that people can access you know online via qr codes on posts excellent, and things like that excellent. so we're using the technology to help engage people in yeah. what's going on here yeah. yeah and how could people get involved more generally in rewilding even if they didn't happen to be a big landowner yeah yeah i mean obviously through rewilding britain we're mainly dealing with large landowners but we do get approached quite a lot of people how can i get engaged in it and just because you don't own land doesn't mean you can't actually contribute you can i mean first of all you know, I would encourage people to look at our website, look at the rewilding network on our website. If you do own smaller land holdings, you can still be a member of that network, it's free, and you can help to hear about what's going on. But for the wider public, you know, if you want to get involved in the rewilding movement, the best thing you can do is look at the map on our rewilding network pages, see where the case studies are around the country, and there are more and more, there's something like 80 sites on there now around the country, and it's growing all the time, and see who's near you, and see if you can get involved, you know, because all of these sites are uh, needing to engage help to varying degrees. But but volunteering is one of the massive wins that I'm seeing on these sites. You know, we're looking at a 1,200% increase in volunteer engagement compared with farming beforehand. So there's so many things that, that people can get involved in, monitoring, wardening, taking nature walks, you know, helping with interventions, all those sorts of things we've been talking about. There's lots of stuff to do. Here at Broughton, we're going to need to rapidly increase the volunteering activity because there's so much to be done. And it's great to be out here working in a wildlife-rich environment with really positive people who wanted to do great things for the future. And I can see people can also buy some yeah, merch. Buy some T-shirts. <laughs> I've got another one that's was actually my lecture title and it's Born to Rewild. Okay, oh, this one, of course, for, yeah, for, yeah, the yeah. <laughs> for the listeners, this says, yeah. think big, act wild. And yeah. there's a big wolf <laughs> on it. Yeah, these are rewild in Britain. You can get them from our online shop. Okay, yeah. excellent. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to show us around this landscape and this particular project. I think it's been really good to talk about rewilding not in a theoretical way but to come and see an actual site where it's mm. happening so thank you so much great for your time. I, I really enjoyed taking you around and i'm so glad you came thank you <laughs>